0: welcome to regeneration this mic was not cooperating with me in the morning it just kept getting lower and uh ended up here very entertaining though we'll see what happens this evening so far the projector went out and so something's going to happen something's going to happen let's pray father thank you for your word and thank you for these folks i ask god that your spirit would move amongst them ministering to them through the challenges that they face through the tests that they face and if those aren't present in their life that celebrating with their joys and praises and I pray Lord for the things happening in our community things happening in our world so much injustice happening and so much that is wrong and I pray Lord that we would not forget how we can intercede for them in Jesus name amen This morning, Swati was sharing her testimony, and then Mike was sharing announcements, and it was interesting how the Holy Spirit just kind of flowed through all of that, like flowed through Mike speaking and flowed through Swati speaking, and and then the message that I'm going to be preaching. And so, since we don't have those other elements, it's going to be different, but I still think that the Holy Spirit's weaving a thematic thing going on with what just happened at the lake and with what's happening in our local community, with Andrew Park running for council member of our district, with Amy Ng, who attends our church and has a home group, running for school board for our district. And there's just some things that are coming together. And so, when looking at those things through the eyes and through the lens, of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses eleven and 12, I think there are questions as to where the church is to be. And so many people have different ideas as to where the church is to be, and I think that there's a lot of confusion surrounding where the church is to be active. Some believe we need to be more active in politics, business, interfaith movements, social agendas, and perhaps more involvement in some or all of those activities is where the church is to be. I understand that we all each have our own calling from God as to where to serve, and each of us has been given different gifts as to where to use those gifts and serve most effectively using them. But let's all take a step back a little bit and kind of look at the baseline of who we are. And based off of last week, we are the living stones of the church. All right. So who are we as the living stones of the church to be? We are the church of Jesus Christ, and according to 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 9, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Whatever activity we find ourselves involved in as Christians in this world, we must look at our conduct through the lens of these verses. You know, in a crowd like ours, we represent many different ideologies, many different philosophies and politics, and we embrace all of them, right? It's all over the spectrum. Hopefully the thing that we can agree on is Jesus. And all these other things, you know, they have to be filtered through these verses. And the way we battle for social reform, political reform, public policy, international relations, is primarily by spiritual means. And I have a quick story to share with you. I had the privilege of having dinner with Andrew Young. And for those of you who aren't familiar with who Andrew Young is. Andrew Young was a close friend of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and one of Dr. King's key supporters of the civil rights movements. So he was one of Dr. King's principal lieutenants. He was a key strategist, a key negotiator for the passage of the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act, and he was with Dr. King in Memphis when he was assassinated. Now at this intimate dinner, Mr. Young shared with us all of his vast and rich experiences as an activist, as a diplomat, and as a politician, but at the heart of all of it was Jesus. And so this is an elderly man now, and he's up there with a bunch of other people, and he's just telling them, I'm going to tone it down, I'm not going to use the curse word they use, but he doesn't care a blip about what everyone thinks because he's too old to care anymore. And so he just went on, he wasn't being a politician, he wasn't being PC or anything about anything. He was there to say that I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, and before any of the activism and the politician stuff and any of that stuff, I'm a Christ follower. I was a pastor. And everything he did flowed from his relationship with Jesus. And so he went on to share with us that it was the same for his close friend, Dr. King who was also a pastor. Everything flowed out of his leadership in the civil rights movement by being a follower of Jesus, by having an identity as a follower of Jesus. It wasn't social or political reform that led him to change civil rights for everyone in the United States. It was that Jesus reformed his heart. And the key figures in the civil rights movement in the United States were Christians, And today we have a world that thinks Jesus is irrelevant. We have a society in our own backyard that disregards God, that misplaces the credit of who and what was responsible for one of the greatest reforms in our nation's history. See, followers of Jesus have always been activists. And so I mentioned earlier today that Andrew's running for city council, that Amy's running for school board, and like many of you, they have a really good sense of civic responsibility. That as individual members in our community, we have a rightful sense to invest into our schools, into school boards, businesses, politics, activism, and we seek out those opportunities to love our neighbors, which we are to do. But are we being led by Jesus into those things, or are we being led by those things, and then we're telling Jesus to follow us into it? See, back in Peter's time, things were a lot worse for Christians then than they are for us now. Right? Not that it's a favorable time to be a follower of Jesus or part of a church in our environment, because it's not the greatest thing, but your life's not threatened. You can go ahead and say what you want, and you can share the gospel, you can proclaim things, and you might get some weird looks, you might get some people that might say not nice things to you or something like that, but your life is not threatened. And even though the environment that Peter was living in was much more hostile than what we face today, he wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Who was Peter facing at that time? Do you realize while he's writing this, the time that he was living? Peter was living under the Roman Empire, under Caesar Nero. you have any idea who Caesar Nero is? Caesar Nero was a tyrant. Caesar Nero, he was feeling threatened by his mom, so he killed her. He felt threatened by his brother. He killed him. He didn't even think twice. When he was persecuting Christians, he'd kill the Christians, have them... Captured, he'd dip them in oil and then he'd impale them and hang them up in his garden so that they can light up his gardens. That was Caesar Nero. That was who Peter was facing at that time. And look at what Peter writes Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. This is very different from what we find today, where Christians attempt to convince others, which candidate or which law is more Christian, where political rallies are held in Christian circles to endorse one candidate or one issue over another. But we don't find such things in the Bible. A lot of the politics that the United States is attempting to marry to Christianity is simply not found in the Bible. And perhaps some people may think, well, you know, times have changed. But something to keep in mind is that the Bible has not changed. The Bible is timeless. It's foundational to our faith. We don't change the teachings of the Bible when it becomes convenient to us. And there lies some of the problem of our society today. The Bible is not accepted as the Word of God. It's not accepted as timeless. And there lies the problem with those who disregard the Bible because it's more convenient to move with the tides of culture and society. I want to share with you just a story In Acts chapter 12, it's actually history. And here we're going to read about how Christians battled injustice during this tyrannical rule of Rome. Starting in verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. Notice this. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so, and he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Poor Peter. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Do you see the difference between how the early Christian church settled things of injustice versus what we are doing in our world? How was Peter set free from an unjust imprisonment? Was it mass protest? Was it riots? Was it we're going to go to the voting booths? It's what some in the world think is just foolishness on a Christian's part. What some claim to be fantasy or make-believe. It's in verse 5. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. It's in verse 12, where many were gathered together and were praying. And it was only then that verse 17 happened. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out. See, church, let's not forget what changed this neighborhood. And I bring this up because the San Francisco Chronicle put out a story about Lake Merritt just yesterday. And I think it was because of what's happening here today with Love the Lake And they specifically talked about our East Lake neighborhood, where the church is at right here. Here's the picture of that story. That's our own Nathan and Andrea. They're just (laughs) beautiful, beautiful couple. I'm going to paint you a different picture than this beautiful picture. It was when we first moved in here 11 years ago when sex and drug trafficking was just happening right here on East 15th Street, where that parking lot was a brothel where folks would just use the parking lot for their stuff, whether it was drug use or prostitution, whatever it was, that was right there. That blue house kitty corner to us was a drug house. Two people ran their drugs out of there. The alleyway right across from the children's ministry, right here in the first, was a drug dealer. And every so often you'd see people coming in and out of that gate, just drugs going back and forth and just doing their things. When we first moved into this neighborhood, it was kind of scary And we kind of wondered, like, do we really want to be here? And we were really praying for this neighborhood. We would gather here, and we would pray. We would just sit around here and pray. And oftentimes, we would just hear a knock at the door, and it would be OPD SWAT. And OPD SWAT would say, you guys cannot leave. you got to stay in here because we're doing a drug sting around your neighborhood. And we've also commandeered your parking lot as a command center. we look out and it's just a big thing, all the lights and all these things and cars and all this stuff. And it was all right there. And so all this stuff was happening right here 11 years ago. Before that, it was happening for decades. Connie Birch, I don't know how many of you are familiar with her. She's the one that crochets all this stuff. She moved into this neighborhood in 1970, and she came up to me after the morning service, and she told me it was way worse from when she first moved in here till now. And the biggest change she's ever seen is this past year in terms of what's happening here. So it's been really bad here for decades And so the Chronicle reports that the way that it changed was because all the money that was invested into the lake, and now it's changed into those things. And I beg to differ. What changed this neighborhood was earnest prayer for this neighborhood was made to God by the church. Many were gathered and were praying, and now I'm able to describe to you how the Lord delivered this neighborhood from what it once was. And so it wasn't because of all the millions. The millions were already here. Grand Lake was already built out with millions of dollars. That whole Grand Lake, Lakeshore area was already built out. Why didn't it bleed over here? This was not a place that anybody wanted to come, right? This neighborhood changed long before the hipsters moved in. long before the so-called San Francisco refugees moved in. This neighborhood changed way before that. It was changing before even regeneration moved in here. I'm not saying regeneration's prayers are the things, hey, we changed this neighborhood because New Hope Covenant Church was praying way before we were tribe church was praying before andrew park who was born and raised here was praying for his neighborhood right here way before we came in we just kind of came in and partnered with these churches that have been praying for this neighborhood for so many years already see no one came through here protesting how bad things were there was no politician that came here to say like oh we need to stop this drug trafficking we need to stop this sex trafficking nobody did anything around here the thing is is now they do Now we have mayoral candidate forums right here. We have council member candidate forums right here in the sanctuary where they debate about different things. But before, no one set foot in this neighborhood. No one had an interest to be here. See, prayer to God is what changed things. It wasn't the millions that they put into the lake. And if you want a deep, positive, transformative change, you need to pray. See, the ways of the world, they haven't worked here. They haven't even worked in our country, right? Think about all of the money that is thrown into our schools and into our health care, and it just simply hasn't worked. The United States spends more per person as compared to all other countries in the world for health care, yet we're not the healthiest. We have a huge obesity problem. Our life expectancy is lower than 25 of the 34 OECD nations. So it's not that, right? In education spending, we are the fourth in the world. But when you look at our graduation rates, they're amongst the lowest for industrialized nations. It's just not working. And you can Google all of the statistics, all the stuff. You just put OECD, education ranking, healthcare ranking, 2013. It'll be up there for you. So there are so many statistics to share in regards to health and education in our nation. But that's not the point. The point is, looking at why we use the ways of the world for change when the Bible gives us evidence that change is brought about through prayer. And as long as we use the world's wisdom, we net the world's results. You want to see miracles? You want to see the supernatural? We look to God. And we put too much weight on how the world does things. And then we try to import those things into the church. But the thing is, is we're not a business We're not a corporation, but we bring all this stuff into the church. And so we bring in things like marketing and management and strategy and technology and finance and all this kind of stuff. And all of that has its place. And we can use that stuff as tools. But those things are secondary matters in the spiritual world. Is the kingdom of Jesus built the same way as a business? And you know what the sad thing is? Is that some people say yes. And this is the type of mentality that's been so pervasive in the American church that the church doesn't even need God to function as an organization anymore. They can just do it. A church that should remain nameless that's up in Montclair, though. They had a vote. They had a vote for their new pastor. And the vote was this. Does the pastor have to be a deist? That's what they were voting on. 60% of that congregation said no. He could be an atheist. It blows my mind. Because it's like saying, I don't believe in education whatsoever, but I want to be a teacher. I don't believe in healthcare whatsoever, I don't believe in that at all, but I want to be a doctor. And that's what's happening, right? That's what's happening. Our weapons are not software or buildings or money or things like that. Our weapons are the Word of God, our prayer, and we have to have the right weapons for the right battle and i 've experienced how some have turned the church into business into just another nonprofit organization. But the thing is is the church is not an organization; the church is an, also an organism, right a living organism made up of living stones, all of you. And we follow, we are reliant upon the chief cornerstone, living stone, Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians chapter two, verses three and four. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Do you want to know whether you believe this or not? You just ask yourself, what are you fighting with? Is it things of the flesh or things of divine power? And it is so easy to fight with the flesh in a nation such as ours where we have courts of law and we have rights which are protected and we have a voice in our democratic government. But see, Christianity is universally true. right? And the divine power to destroy strongholds is true in Peter's time and it's also true in our day. Unlike these courts of law and democratic governments and all these kinds of things today. Here's the problem in our society. We aren't reliant on prayer and we aren't in desperate need of prayer as those gathered in the church who were praying for Peter's release. We aren't reliant and desperate for it because there are things that we can do about it. We can do something political. We can do something financial. We can protest, boycott, strike. We can do all this stuff. But the thing is is that that's not universally true. You think what's happening in Iraq and Syria with ISIS and ISIL is going to be solved by the way that we solve our problems here? Do you really think it's going to be solved politically or militarily? The sad thing there is some people actually say yes. See, there are serious spiritual battles going on there. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. See, the way we approach things is so first world, and that's going to be turned into a derogatory term soon. But it's so first world, right? Because we approach things and we think, hey, we don't like that. So since I don't like that, the next time I go vote, I'm going to vote against it. And if I don't like it, I'm going to boycott it. If I don't like it, I'm going to protest against it. I'm going to throw a strike against it. And so the thing is, is that universally true? Can that be done everywhere? You cannot do that in Syria and Iraq. It is not universally true. The only powerful weapon that they have because they're so outgunned and they're so outmanned is to lift up their prayers and their cries to Jesus. And what can we do? We fight spiritually Ephesians chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. We pray. We pray. You know, our church, we say that we are for justice, but are we really? Are we really? Are we even in the fight? I mean, what fight are you fighting? And one of the questions you can ask yourself is, does the spiritual darkness even have to worry about you? Or can they just kind of look at you and be like, don't worry about that guy. Because he just protests. He just holds up signs. He just does different things. But we don't have to worry about him. What about the sword of the Spirit? Do you ever take it out of its sheath? Do you ever... Practice with it. What about prayer? How's that going? And when we get preoccupied with things that distract us from the Word of God and with prayer, we start looking to other things. Things of the flesh to fight spiritual battles. And when we do that, we lose. Here's another historical story. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's the story of David and Goliath. Very familiar story to all of you, or most of you. The Philistines are on one side, the Israelites are on the other side. They're encamped there to do battle at the Valley of Elah. And the Philistines had this soldier who, who, was, who was just this champion behemoth of a man named Goliath, over eight feet tall. And with that, he had the armor and the weapons to match his size and strength. So, needless to say, one big dude. Okay, and so this humongous man issued a challenge to Israel to send anybody you want. You can send anyone you want, and we'll just settle this. The winner takes all. Me against that guy. And so for 40 days, the Philistines are taunting them, morning and night, just taunting. And then enter David, shepherd boy David, who was running between his house and the encampment so that he could take care of his sheep at home and so that he could bring his supplies to his older brothers at the encampment. Well, David hears Goliath's challenge. And then he sees how the men are fearful of Goliath. And then he hears of King Saul's reward to whomever defeats Goliath. Now Saul gets word of David's desire to fight Goliath. And so he sends for him. And so Saul takes a look at David when David gets there. And he says, are you kidding me? You're a kid. There's no way. That giant has been a soldier since he was a kid. And you're wanting to fight that guy? And so... This is what David says. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. But this is what I find extremely interesting. Check out what Saul did in verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Do you see what happened there? You see how Saul wanted to use the ways of the world to do battle. And how David recognized this wasn't just a battle of flesh and blood. This is not that battle. Check out what David said to Goliath in verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, skipping down to verse 47, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. This is our church today in the Western world. We're busy playing army dress up rather than going out to fight spiritual battles in the name of the Lord. We're busy putting on this armor that we don't need. And everything we need to battle darkness has been given to us by God. But I think people neglect the power of his word, neglect the power of prayer, and they would rather battle in the flesh, See, there's a lack of faith that we have access to divine power to destroy stronghold. And we've become so self-reliant to do things on our own. Now, if that's really the case, that we can just do things on our own, why didn't Jesus nor any of the apostles give us a strategic plan as to how we are going to overtake the world with the gospel? Why didn't they lay that out for us? Why are there no meeting minutes recorded regarding how they were going to politically overturn the Roman government? Why is there no mention of how they were going to strategically place apostles here and there so that we can have the greatest impact all over the world? Why is there none of that? Now, I'm not saying that all of that is worthless. It's not. Because those things can be beneficial. But the strategies of the world don't seem to be at the top of the list when it comes to how God does things. That's not to say what you do for your community socially or politically or judiciously is insignificant. But the thing is, those are not the things that our faith is built upon. Before we go about doing all that stuff, we need to hear from God. And to hear from God, we need to seek Him in His Word and we need to seek Him in prayer. And how often do we take things into our own hands before praying to God about it? We see injustice and we want to act upon it right now rather than seeking God. Now I understand for some things that that would be the right thing to do, right? For example, you see a weaker person getting assaulted by a stronger person. You don't have to pray about that. Do something about that, right? That's time to act. But there are so many things that we join the world in acting upon without seeking God when they're not as urgent to act upon. What's happening in the Middle East is urgent. But it's not something that we can urgently act upon. It's not like stopping some guy from beating up a weaker person. See, how many people would take things into their own hands rather than praying to God for deliverance? See, where we're at, we're so accustomed to throwing money at things and throwing resources at things and throwing people at things. Yet, Peter says this in Acts chapter 3, verse 6, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I'm not saying that we don't provide people with resources that we have. I am posing the question of whether we've lost the spiritual power to usher miracles into the present because we've become so dependent on earthly resources. See, Christianity in the first world countries, it's so different than what's happening in third world countries. And it's because they have nothing else but to be completely reliant on God. Right? The things happening in South America, Africa, Asia are just so different. I was talking to a friend of mine, David Carroll from Gospel for Asia, just a few months ago. And he was sharing with me the things that were happening in India. And it was just Story after story of miracles that was happening in India. And it's just a completely different conversation when I'm talking to someone from the United States who's sharing with me about their strategies in church planting. Right? How are we going to do this outreach? What are the demographic studies? What are the best ways to reach this demographic? And all this kind of stuff. I'm not putting it down because I believe in it. But the thing is, it's just a really far cry from the revival that I'm hearing from David. All of this, I believe, has an underlying problem. And then now I'm going back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. And this is the underlying problem. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... I think many of us individually and the church have gotten too comfortable in this world, and we think we're citizens here. That this is not just a stopping ground for us, that we don't view ourselves as sojourners or exiles. We view this as home. And so we take up how to fight for this place with a heavenly mindset. To abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. See, there is a relationship between what is happening with our flesh and what is happening with us spiritually. But the battle is ultimately spiritual, and we tend to focus more on the flesh than for our soul. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places Keep this in mind when you think you're fighting against things of the flesh And know that God is sovereign. He is in control. Even all the things around us may seem like God is not in control. But we're instructed in Romans chapter 13 verses 1 and 2, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment." Paul also wrote this at a time when the governing authorities were very hostile towards Christianity. Peter wrote 1 Peter at a time where it was very antagonistic towards Christians. But they both knew. They both knew that it was not a battle against human institutions. We'll get into more of that next week. Verse 12 here. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, so when, not if, when, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We will be spoken badly of. And when we are, those folks aren't going to be looking at how much we pray or how much we go to church or how much we worship or anything like that. It says, they may see your good deeds. See, we are to be honorable. We are to be above reproach and follow Jesus well. We are not to conduct ourselves immorally, unethically, illegally in any of our behaviors we are to obey the laws of the land to the extent that they don't violate our biblical laws and we'll talk more about that next week as well and the ways of the world is not going to save us the ways of jesus will and if we want to see true transformation in people and in communities we need to earnestly pray We need to have the attitude and the posture that we are sojourners, we are exiles. This is a temporary place for us. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word and we ask, Lord, for Your forgiveness when we have acted prior to seeking Your will, prior to seeking how You are working. God, I pray that You would give us the discernment and the wisdom of how to go about our lives, being activists, being advocates for the weaker. Lord, I pray your blessing upon our church. We're in so much need of you to see this neighborhood impacted. And yes, much has changed in the past decade, but the graduation rate for Oakland Unified School District for black males has not. It's still over 60% of kids not graduating. So, Lord, there are so many things that are in need of help in our education system to how we serve the homeless here, to how we serve refugees here. We need you, and we need your wisdom as to how to change those things for your glory. Lord, prevent us from working out of our flesh. We desire to work in your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.